You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So the last time we checked in with our trade and customs colleagues, we had a great conversation about Made in America and U.S. trade developments. And as part of that discussion, we touched on the U.S. forced labor rules, particularly the heightened enforcement action at the U.S. borders. Well, it didn't take long to realize that we couldn't do the topic justice in the context of that episode, so we've invited our friends back for a more in-depth discussion today. Joining me is my co-host and international tax principal from our Detroit office, Courtney Wallace, as well as George Zaharatos, trade and customs principal from our Atlanta office. And as another part of our futures program that I recall we also launched with one of George's team members, we welcome Pierfilippo Nata, a senior associate from our San Diego office. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, George and Pierre, for joining us such an important topic. Very rarely do we venture into the human rights area. And I think really interesting that we'll come at it now from this trade and customs perspective. So Pierre, what exactly is forced labor? I can picture all kinds of different things, but can you just describe for us some practical scenarios where forced labor might be implicated? Yes, certainly, Kim. There are various definitions. You can find it within U.S. customs laws. You can find it within international labor organizations' definition, and you can find it within international standards as a whole. So just to give you a general idea of what forced labor is, imagine being in a position where a person is under the threat of penalty and they have not offered themselves voluntarily to conduct the work. That would be a situation where forced labor is present. And because the term itself is quite vague, the International Labor Organization has come up with 11 standards to determine circumstances in which forced labor are present. And those 11 standards are very simple. They look at wages, they look at deception, they look at physical violence, and they look at a number of different factors, whether they're internal or external related to the environment. And then based upon that, you can conclude whether forced labor is present. So in short, the definition is quite vague, but the 11 factors allow you to determine whether forced labor is present or not. So it is quite subjective. So that if you have particularly young laborers, or even if you have mature laborers, but they're not in good working conditions, like maybe they're working in extreme heat or extreme cold. Is is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Yes, exactly. Child labor is defined a little bit differently in international standards. When you think of child labor, you think of work that deprives children of their childhood and potential dignity. So is there some kind of relativity depending on the particular industry? I grew up in a farming community and all of my friends, no matter how young or old, if their family owned a farm, they were working on the farm. Yes, definitely. There is subjectivity, especially when it comes to sectors and also geographic locations, right? So if you think 
about the US, typically minors under the age of 14 cannot be employed except for, you know, very specific jobs like newspaper carriers or such. And whereas maybe in the eastern part of the world, you don't have the same age limits, right? So that's one factor to consider. Another factor to consider is, like you said, the sectors, right? If we look at Africa, we tend to see that a lot of child labor is used because of literally the physical size of the children that need to go through specific areas or fields. So obviously, this is very subjective. What's very important, though, is to understand that the International Labor Organization set out some standards. And within the standards, there is some objectiveness within that subjectivity to define whether forced labor is present. When the U.S. is looking at the rest of the world, does the U.S. enforce the U.S. understanding at its own borders of even just the definition of a child would be? When it comes to forced labor, Customs has actually implemented the International Labor's Organization standards of forced labor. So if you go on their website and if you look at their public statements and their guidance, they refer to these specific standards. So the U.S. imposes these international standards as if they're their own. It would be a good point to pause for a second because there is, I think, value in us discussing the evolution of the rules. The intent is to protect domestic production, right? Like you wouldn't be able to compete against countries who are using zero cost labor and under conditions that we wouldn't want, but zero cost labor against what we would have to pay our laborers in the United States. There's this consumptive demand clause in the original 1930 regulations, which would allow you to import if you could prove that there wasn't any way you could produce it in the United States. That was removed. With the TIFTIA, the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act in 2015. And so initially the regulations were designed for purposes of protecting the U.S. production, while more recently the TIFTIA removed that and said this is something that just shouldn't be in the supply chain altogether. I think the evolution of that helps us understand where we came from and where we are today. Okay. And what happens if you use it in your supply chain? What are the consequences? Customs has been implementing enforcement action through regulation and through legislation, which essentially means that if forced labor is detected within supply chains, Customs has the authority to seize goods and block them from being imported into the American stream of commerce. Their enforcement mechanisms which are WROs, which is short for withhold release orders. And a withhold release order essentially means that a good is being detained because there's reasonable suspicion that a good is produced with forced labor. Typically, customs receives an alert from civil society or from NGOs or even from their own audits, and they require that an importer produces enough documentation to prove otherwise. So in short, the burden of proof is now shifted to the importer to prove whether their goods are produced with forced labor or not. What happens as a practical matter if they seize your goods at the border? Can they hold them forever? How does that work out when they actually do run afoul of these? Well, practically speaking, they could be re-exported back to the supplier and never enter U.S. commerce. But otherwise, they sit in a warehouse at the port 
and they start to rack up warehouse charges. And of course, that becomes expensive. And until you can prove that the goods are not produced with forced labor, they continue to sit at the port and they continue to incur charges. It's a difficult situation for companies to be in to not know if their products will ever be released. And so from a practical perspective, a lot of companies take an approach where they just export them back to the supplier and then collect their information and the documentation to prove that the products that were imported did not include forced labor. Do the customs authorities in one jurisdiction communicate with others? If you can't take your goods into the United States, where are you going to ship them? Well, you know what? Canada's right there. But how would they know? Are they sharing the same database information as to the NGO analyses and petitions? Are U.S. customs folks talking to the Canadian customs folks? If a company who imports into the United States gets their merchandise seized, and that company decides to export them out of the United States to a third country, say, likelihood that there's communication between the customs authorities in the different countries, whether it's the country that first imported, the second one that imported, is probably unlikely. With the U.S. Forced Labor Prevention Act, which was signed into law in December 2021, There's a specific section which tackles diplomacy and how the different governments are going to deal with creating a strategy to combat forced labor. So within this section of the law, the diplomatic strategy calls to the coordination and collaboration with appropriate non-governmental entities and private sector entities. And it also implies that this be the case with other governments as well. And we kind of see that through the different jurisdictions that have been implementing similar laws in similar fashion as the US. So I would say over the next year or so, as we wait for guidance to come out from the EU and the US uh, administrations respectively, we imagine there to be a task force or a collaborative unit that works together to specifically address scenarios such as the ones that you raised, Kim, right, where a good is seized, or maybe even before a good is seized, it's redirected to a different jurisdiction, right? So in that case, we expect there to be a general consensus that once one government deems a good to be produced with forced labor, or has at least that reasonable suspicion that the good is produced with forced labor, it isn't welcome in another jurisdiction. So here, it's interesting to me that we can stop imports based on a reasonable suspicion. How do we go about figuring out what's reasonable and what are really some of the mechanisms that they're doing to come up with what is reasonable? This is a question we get a lot from our clients. And sadly, the answer isn't very simple because there are no strict guidance issued by customs or by Department of Homeland and Security, which define the protocols linked to defining whether a good is considered forced labor and whether there is reasonable suspicion to consider it as such. But what we've seen is civil society plays a huge role here. Customs relies on NGOs and activists and organizations who work in the humanitarian field to provide input as to whether they believe there are red flags that are being raised in the context of forced labor. So typically what we've seen is in the context of Malaysia or China, we've seen activists reaching out and petitioning directly to 
customs and customs actually set up a portal where you can petition and issue your own reports of suspicion of forced labor. And that plays a fundamental role in understanding how the reasonable suspicion can be attained. And so it relies heavily on external factors, right? And clients often find themselves in very difficult situations because once the reasonable suspicion is given by customs, they have to obtain a series of documentations from their suppliers. And that goes down to, in the context of cotton, like looking at where the yarn is produced, looking at where the spinning is conducted, looking at where the weaving is carried out. And a series of documentations going all the way down to fourth, fifth, and sixth tier of your supply chain. And that's very complex because most of the time those documents aren't in English and most of the time the suppliers are quite adamant in providing those documents to the actual importer. So it really places a huge burden on the importer when it's time to produce that document package. Yes, I may know my first tier supplier, but I don't know the suppliers four times down the chain that have gone into making up the goods that are otherwise coming into my finished product. It's really challenging. This shift is causing companies to come up with new sourcing strategies. And those sourcing strategies require a lot of different inputs. The tariff rates, the tax rates, VAT, everything that goes into those models is really important. And now they just need to layer on top another consideration, maybe one that's not as easy to put in numbers, but it's making sure that when they make their decisions, where they're going to put their factories, what products they're going to produce and what they're going to import, that those products are not made with forced labor. And a lot of them are thinking about how they can embed that into their sourcing strategy today. I'm still honestly a little confused. Cargo ship appears in the port. The customs officer wanders up and says, all right, so what's on the ship? I mean, as far as the folks on the ship know, they picked up products from one port and they transported those products or those goods or cartons of whatever it was to another port. So. How is it that we go from NGO analyses and petitions or whatnot on a customs website to getting reasonable suspicion that forced labor has been used in a particular shipment? That's a very good question, Kim. It's actually very difficult to identify at face value a shipment that may have forced labor associated with it. A lot of what happens to identify forced labor happens behind the scenes. So a bill of lading may not tell you where the products and how they were produced. It will tell you where it's coming from. And in some cases, it'll explain to you the firm or the company that they came from that produced them, that exported them from origin. The standards that Pierre mentioned around the ILO and what it is that you can file a petition for is really what we should be digging into. When it comes to those factors that will provide an indication, they're extremely difficult to detect. And so it really comes down to the regions that have been reported that have forced labor or the types of products that are common to having been produced by forced labor that U.S. Customs will then continue to collect information on and conduct their own risk assessment to identify if certain shipments are more likely uh, to have some forced labor in the supply chain. 
I remember you taking me through Customs 101 at some point, and the harmonized tariff schedule, the classification of a, say, a t-shirt, for example, will presumably tell you whether there is cotton in there, or if there is silk in there. So that is a little bit helpful, I would suppose. And then if you know that it is a cotton t-shirt, and again, you have some sense as to origin, I guess the CBP knows that based on the analyses, cotton plus certain jurisdictions means there's a likelihood. Is that basically what we're coming down to? So they're just playing statistics based on their prior knowledge? That is right. The HTS, the classification, typically identifies a product for purposes of assigning a duty rate for imports into the United States. And that's a very easy way for U.S. Customs to identify what products might fall into categories. And those categories come from certain regions that have been reported through petitions of having had forced labor. So, Court, coming into this conversation, I would have thought, well, almost like under criminal procedure or something, there are specific facts that trigger a very specific suspicion that these particular goods were made with forced labor. Then you can kind of start down the WRO path and you shift the burden of proof, et cetera. I'm not sure why I had that impression to begin with. But thinking about it, all you're left with is a likelihood based on observable data that something has happened. Absolutely. And I do think that's where the teeth are, right, Mm -hmm. is in the ability to shift that burden back to say, now tell us what you've done to otherwise control your data and know who your suppliers are and what you're doing to help kind of protect the system here and the integrity of the goods that you want to import into the U.S. So it, it is interesting, but difficult, I think, for the companies because you really do need to do your homework around some of that data making sure that you know who you're dealing with all the way down the supply chain. Yeah, because at the point that you're standing in a port answering questions, it is too late to fix whatever substantive or transparency problems you have in your supply chain. I think I read something that use of prisoners to manufacture goods is in some instances forced labor. I thought we did that in the United States as well. Yeah, Pierre, do you want to take it? Okay, that's actually a very sensitive question in the sense that that is something that has been raised a lot with customs. When you look at the U.S. legal statute specific to forced labor, prison-made good is considered to be forced labor. And in the U.S., there is a typical scenario where you think of number plates that are being made in prisons. And Mm -hmm. customs has been questioned and asked whether that would constitute forced labor. But in that case because of the definition and the ILO factors, it wouldn't really constitute forced labor per se because of the 11 different ILO factors and because of the context in which the workers are situated. So when we think of forced labor and prison-made goods in the US, you wouldn't meet the criteria set out by the ILO standards. I see. Nothing seems to be a given here if it's always going to go back to an 11-factor test. George, how do these rules stack up with those in the other countries? So, Courtney, the U.S.'s rules are a lot more defined today than they were in the past and much more defined than what they are globally. And so the U.S. is seen as a bellwether, a standard that other countries are now 
following in order to set their own standards on anti-forced labor regulations. Wait a minute. Are other countries seizing goods at the border because of forced labor? Yeah, I would say the only one is Canada right now. When it comes to forced labor, the reason why the U.S. kind of leads this space is because forced labor is defined under customs laws. Whereas when you look at other jurisdictions, forced labor is defined typically within the labor law codes. By virtue of that, it's very difficult to obtain seizure of good mandates or protocols because labor law would not allow for such mechanisms to be enforced. The only other country which has a similar situation as the U.S. where they are able to seize goods would be Canada, and they have an act specific to modern slavery where they reference the customs tariff. WRO, that's a real bite. And if you've decided as a jurisdiction or as an administration that expectations alone aren't going to fix the problems, then you really need some penalties. There's a shift right now. And I would say in 2020, since COVID started, there has been a lot of media attention to the whole world. Looked at the U.S. to see how to adopt these enforcement actions, and they've been slowly mimicking the steps that the U.S. administration has started. And so over the last two years, we've seen a lot of different legislation specifically coming out of Europe, as well as from the EU itself, specifically targeting the goods rather than issuing civil penalties. And then on top of that, creating obligations for companies, so reporting requirements, essentially, which in the U.S. we haven't seen yet. Is there any more guidance that's on the horizon? There is, Courtney. So some of the guidance is published by Customs. Just to give you a sense, there are 53 existing withhold release orders. Those withhold release orders are the basis for what U.S. Customs will be targeting and is targeting. In FY22, there were four withhold release orders, new orders, that keep adding to this library of products and countries, and there were 912 shipments detained. So there's a host of what has happened that will dictate where Customs is focusing their time. What's a needle in the haystack is how do you know that your shipment is in one of those previous orders? How do you know that the country that you're importing from may be subject to or have some forced labor in the supply chain, and then be able to prepare the documentation to prove that it's not. And so much of these detentions that you see, and I quoted 912 in 2022 so far, the majority of those did not result in a withhold release order, but it's up to the importer to prove that there was no forced labor in the supply chain. So it makes it really difficult for companies today to manage this risk and proactively taking steps to identify not only your supplier, but their suppliers, having that supply chain visibility is what most companies are trying to figure out right now. And basically, what Customs really relies on is having a third-party auditor actually conduct an assessment and verify whether, through an independent review, whether there are allegations of forced labor. So they don't want companies to operate internally and try to fix this uh, these circumstances, but they want the assistance of a third party. And then on top of that, they place a huge emphasis on remediation. So we've seen a lot of companies actually conduct remediation efforts by paying workers 
unpaid wages. So in a way, it can be considered a sort of settlement, right? So I guess it's something like due diligence or something that you have an ethical supply chain. Yeah, exactly. When you look at a third party's final report, you would expect them to have assessed the 11 different factors individually and then have provided feedback as to whether there are any gaps or any violations as to that. They just want to make sure that you've actually conducted an independent review analyzing every single factor. Okay, so George, we've mentioned China here. We've actually mentioned China a lot in conversations that we have all had about trade policy, particularly in the last several years. Is this just another arrow in the same quiver or is this something bigger? Is this something different? Well, I think that there are a few things going on and maybe some numbers can help us, right? If you look at the WROs that have been issued out of the 53 that are open and out there, 35 are against China. The next country down is Malaysia with six. So is China a target of forced labor WROs? Perhaps. I look at the statistics again and I look at the dates and when those WROs came out and there were seven in 1991, there were 13 in 1992. There was a whole lull until you hit 2016 and then they started up again. And what I think we see now is there's a balance between we want to be able to level the playing field for trade. We've done a lot in the U.S. in the past few years, whether it's additional tariffs or anti-dumping duties or other non-tariff barriers such as forced labor to address the issue that we have a trade deficit that some countries are not playing by the rules, whether it's IP theft or it's using forced labor in this instance. And it could be construed as, you know, the U.S. looking for ways to be more protectionist. But I really do think that the rules that have been passed and the enforcement that's going on now, where it could have had a motivation to crack down on the ability of the U.S. to be competitive, and be competitive in trade is also balanced by what is hugely bipartisan to come up with rules that respect the individual and human rights. And the legislation that's being put out kind of shows that. So it's a little bit of a twist on, is it something that the U.S. is doing to maintain its trade posture and its foreign policy? Perhaps, but has it evolved into something different where with all of the ESG initiatives that are going on and the ability to be responsible global citizens, that there's an emphasis on combating forced labor? I think so. I think that the supply chains have had a lot more scrutiny in the past few years, independent of tariffs and independent of U.S. trade policy. It's a little bit more of the do good, do well, but maybe it doesn't matter where it comes from as long as the end result is something that we all agree is where we need to be. I would add the main driver of all this are the consumers, right? So the consumers are the ones who want to see the transparent supply chains. They want to see that companies are taking the initiatives to actually verify where they're sourcing their goods from. Pierre, that's an amazing point because the consumers have a loud voice 
you don't really hear consumers saying, you know what, I actually want to pay more for a product. So can you put 25% additional duty on a product? But you do hear consumers say, I will not buy that product if I know that it came from a bad place or that it was produced with forced labor, with slave labor, with child labor in conditions that are subhuman. And so the consumer is making a difference because they can speak up and they're the ones that are actually reporting some of the activities that are going on in the supply chains in order to identify where forced labor has shown its face. That is pretty fantastic. Yeah, Kim, you, you refer to it as this is different. If you think of the US, it's never been the leading authority when it comes to international standards and norms. If you look at the Forced Labor Convention, it wasn't ratified by the US. However, through customs, they implemented international labor organization standards, which means that they're now advancing international law. They're being the advocates for this. They're advancing human rights and they're actually creating legislation which has been copied by European countries, which typically tend to be the leaders in the human rights space. So the reason why forced labor is fascinating is because it puts America on the top step of the podium when it comes to being a human rights champion. So it's almost hard to imagine that the forced labor movement started back in 1930 because it's such a timely topic now as companies move to ensure that they not only have diverse but also ethical supply chains. I expect and hope that this is the first of many conversations that we'll be having on this topic. In the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.